Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. Today it's time for the second part of our short Sino-Soviet split story. Much like the Cold War itself, this story went on a little longer than expected, so this will be part two of three. You may recall that in the last episode, the relationship between the Chinese and the Soviets was increasingly tense, even though both of them were opposed to America. The Soviets were hopeful of peaceful coexistence with the capitalist world, which the Chinese thought was scandalous. In this episode, we'll just look at how the hopes for peaceful coexistence fell apart. Next time, we round things off by looking at how China capitalized on the situation to ease their own tensions with the West and kick the Russians straight in the balls. By the end of the last episode, Mao Zedong was increasingly troubled by the way that the Americans and the Russians, who should be locked in a death grip, were trying to be all friendly and whatnot. And he didn't like Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, and rather fancied himself for the job of global communist father figure. But Red China was shunned by America, diplomatically and economically, and it wasn't recognised at the UN, and they didn't have the nuclear missiles which made people pay attention to them, and there was no space programme to show off. China just had hundreds of millions of people, many of whom were enduring a famine. There were only two players at the big boys' table, and that was America the Soviet Union. Despite Eisenhower and Khrushchev both wanting to lower the temperature, suspicions were high and the temptation to spy on each other was simply too strong. In May 1960, the pilot Francis Gary Powers was flying high above Soviet territory on a CIA surveillance mission, happily snapping away at what he saw below. It wasn't the first biplane the Americans had doing this, and the Soviets knew it, but this time they took it out of the sky. The impact of the missile, 70,000 feet, and the subsequent mayhem is dramatically recounted on the website of, would you believe it, the CIA. Here's an excerpt. Power's initial reaction was to pull the distract switches, but he decided he'd better secure an exit plan for himself first. This, however, was proving difficult as the G-forces had hurled him to the nose of the plane, which was spinning tail first towards the Earth. Powers thought of ejecting but realised, in his current position, he likely would have both of his legs cut off while trying to escape the plane. On the verge of panic, Powers decided he would climb out of the plane. The whirling aircraft had passed 34,000 feet when he removed the canopy. He took off his seatbelt, which sent him flying halfway out of the aircraft. His faceplate frosted over, rendering him visionless. Powers tried to get to the destruct switches twice, but, realising time was running out, began kicking frantically and miraculously the oxygen hoses that were holding him hostage in the U-2 broke and freed him from the spiralling plane. Suddenly, all was silent. 
except for the rustling of material as the chute opened and settled in the wind. Powers hung in the air desperately, trying to comprehend what just happened, and trying to assess its current situation. He was 15,000 feet above the Soviet Union, and the ground was getting ever closer. Powers had a silver dollar with a poison pin in it, so the Americans could be forgiven for assuming that he was dead. They wove a cover story about weather planes until the Soviets showed the world a photo of the captured pilot, exposing the Americans as spies and liars too. Powers had not spent the dollar, as they say, and US media criticised him as a coward for not killing himself before being captured. Then, in a blundered attempt to take responsibility off of Eisenhower, Khrushchev made the mistake of implying that perhaps the American president hadn't signed off on the mission, which of course Eisenhower had to deny. He couldn't make it sound like he wasn't in control of things, and part of that denial involved justifying the spying by ramping up the anti-Soviet rhetoric. In response to that, Khrushchev took back an invitation for Eisenhower to visit the Soviet Union, and later that year at the United Nations General Assembly, the Soviet leader was so perturbed by being portrayed as the bad guy that he supposedly resorted to banging a shoe on the desk in exasperation. As the General Assembly meeting continued, delegates insulted each other, and the Assembly President, struggling to keep control, banged his gavel so hard the top flew off. It was all getting a bit Dr. Strangelove, and Mao was the one who wanted to ride that nuclear bomb. And so we are in 1961, and the 1st of January 1961 was the two-year anniversary of the Cuban Revolution, when Fidel Castro, his brother Raul, and that staple of bedroom walls everywhere, Che Guevara, overthrew the right-wing, US-backed military dictator, Fulgencio Batista, and his cronies. They might be celebrating the anniversary in Havana, but just before leaving office in January 1961, President Eisenhower severed ties with the new Cuban regime. Not only that but he had prepared an invasion of Cuba using CIA-trained Cuban exiles and had left the unfinished business on the new president's to-do list. JFK, don't forget to invade Cuba. Yours, Dwight. Kennedy took over and went ahead with the invasion on 17th of April, but it went horribly wrong. The invading force which landed at the Bay of Pigs was captured or killed and American involvement was exposed. Just like with the U-2 spy plane incident, America was being shown up to be meddling secretively in all these dubious ways, and they weren't even getting results. Cuban President Fidel Castro began to consider how to prevent the Americans doing such a thing again. Hmm, maybe a few nukes on my island would act as a deterrent, began to muse. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, the communists were toasting the success of the first manned space flight in human history. Yuri Gagarin had landed in Saratov Oblast, having spent almost two hours whizzing around the Earth. The first humans to see this orange-clad spaceman land on Earth were a humble farmer and his daughter. Don't be afraid, Gagarin reassured them. I am a Soviet citizen like you, who has descended from space and I must find a telephone to call Moscow. He quickly became just about the most famous man in the world, and a lovely smile he had too. In the global battle for the best ideas, it wasn't clear at all that America was on the winning side. This is fantastic, thought Khrushchev, and maybe a few nukes in Cuba would really hit the Americans where it hurts.
And so the promise of peaceful coexistence was beginning to fade. And the next piece of shit to hit the fan was the shit in Berlin. And this was a particularly big shit and it was to cause severe problems to the workings of the fan. So let's rewind the tape a little and look at how the situation in Berlin had become just so fucked. Berlin was an unresolved problem going back to the end of World War II, when the Soviets liberated the city. And it became split between the Soviet-friendly East and a Western-friendly West. Germany as a whole was also split up in a similar way, as was all of Europe. But the city of Berlin is in East Germany, which was the communist side. Meaning that the western half of Berlin, the half controlled by the Allies, was an enclave, surrounded on all sides by hostile power. The people of West Berlin got supplies via corridors through East Germany from West Germany, a precarious situation which, back in 1948, Joseph Stalin had closed to put pressure on the Allies. But the Allies famously responded with Berlin airlift, flying in the supplies and calling Stalin's bluff, who refrained from shooting down the planes. In 1949, the corridors were reopened. By 1958, Stalin was dead and our tubby friend Khrushchev was calling the shots. And he also wanted to get this Berlin situation sorted out. Fearing that West Berlin might switch from being controlled by the Allies to being controlled by West Berlin, a symbolic change which would hurt the Soviets' feelings, and also fearing NATO expansion and nuclear missiles creeping up towards the borders of the Eastern Bloc, Khrushchev called an ultimatum. Withdraw military assets from West Berlin, or will hand over control of the supply corridors to the East German government. This was, in effect, a threat to create another blockade of West Berlin. As Khrushchev has said in one of his colourful moments, West Berlin is the testicles of the Western world. If you want to hurt them, just squeeze. And he was poised to do just that. The Allies managed to convince Khrushchev to hold off implementing his blockade. And in June 1961, shortly after the Bay of Pigs and Yuri Gagarin's spaceflight, Khrushchev and Kennedy met at the Vienna summit to discuss matters, primarily the Berlin matter. Well, the success of that meeting can be measured by what happened two months later. On the night of August the 12th, the order was given to close the border between East Germany and West Berlin, and at midnight, police and other government workers began putting up fences and barbed wire, which eventually evolved into concrete walls with armed troops man towers, tank traps, alarms, ditches, and flesh-eating hounds. It would split Berliners between East and West for the next 28 years. The first casualty of the Berlin Wall occurred 10 days into the new reality, when Ida Siegmann jumped from her fourth-floor flat into West Berlin, but didn't survive the fall. The first deliberate killing occurred the day after that, when Gunther Litvin was shot dead while trying to swim across the river to the West. Ridiculously, the wall circumvented West Berlin entirely, but it was the citizens of East Germany who wanted to get into it, like some kind of reverse prison where the inmates are the free ones. Before the wall, East Berliners could go to West Berlin, defect, become West German citizens, and for all intents and purposes, look forward to a better life. But since only East Berliners could legally move to West Berlin, Germans from other parts of East Germany would migrate to East Berlin and then cross over. This was a real headache for the Soviets and their communist puppet government in East Germany. Their system just didn't look so good when huge numbers of people were so keen to leave it, not to mention the economic knock caused by having millions of people go elsewhere. Hence the wall was built to stop this. But the wall 
hardly endeared East Berlin's citizens to their communist rulers. And it's thought that some 5,000 people managed to get across, using all sorts of daring and inventive methods, as the journey became harder over the years. Deaths from attempts are in the hundreds, and it was here, on a bridge between East and West Berlin, that the downed spy plane pilot, Francis Gary Powers, was swapped for the Soviet spy, Rudolf Abel, with help from Tom Hanks, if I remember correctly. Powers had been incarcerated for less than two years of his ten-year prison sentence, and had made a close friend in his cellmate, a man called Zigurd. When the Soviet representative on the bridge pushed Powers towards freedom, he said, Next time you come to see us, come as friend. But despite the hopes and good intentions of so many across this fractured divide, the winds of history were blowing hard in a hostile direction. In late 1961, showing to the world that peaceful coexistence was now no more than a pipe dream, American and Soviet tanks faced each other down across Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. Tensions were rising, not falling. Excellent, cackled Chairman Mao back in Beijing. The downturn in relations was topped off two days later when the Soviets exploded Tsar Bomba, the biggest nuke that humanity has ever witnessed, one and a half thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs combined. The flash of Tsar Bomba could be seen 630 miles away. The mushroom cloud soared 40 miles into the sky. The plane that dropped the bomb while trying to flee the area was knocked a thousand metres down towards the earth by the blast before the pilot regained control. It was a moment of such unspeakable power that God himself would have caused to flinch. The following year, Kennedy and Khrushchev would find themselves weighing up the possibility of consuming each other's people within nuclear fireballs like those they'd been testing. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the USA responded to the discovery of Soviet missiles on Cuba with a military blockade. And the two superpowers came within a whisker of blowing each other, and the rest of us, up. Thankfully, disaster was averted, and after a nerve-wracking couple of weeks, Soviet missiles were removed from Cuba, while American missiles were, secretly, later removed from Turkey. Kennedy and Khrushchev had gone to the brink, two men carrying with them the fate of humanity, and cooler heads had in the end prevailed. I think historians tend to agree that both leaders were responsible for the outbreak of sanity which prevented the end of the world, against sometimes overwhelming political pressure to ratchet things up even further. But the two opposing leaders were to have a tough time in the aftermath, especially Kennedy who was gunned down the following year in Dallas. Over in the Kremlin, the crisis undermined Khrushchev's authority and on the 14th of October 1964, they retired him. And on this occasion, that's not a euphemism for killing him. He went off to retire in a dacha outside Moscow. In place of these two Cold War titans, Lyndon B. Johnson and Leonid Brezhnev took the stage. The news of Khrushchev's downfall was well received in Beijing, where Mao was worried about Chinese versions of Khrushchev popping up to denounce him for his cultish leadership and his famine, as Khrushchev had done for Stalin. Increasingly, it was looking like Liu Xiaoqi, the president of China, would be that man. Mao's great leap forward had been a disaster, and more moderate, pragmatic figures like Liu were in the ascendancy as the government attempted to stem the radicalism and clean up the mess. First the Russians, and now my own comrades, Mao's thinking. 
where have all the real commies gone? Indeed, in early 1962, at the Conference of the 7,000 Cadres, Liu Xiaoqi blamed the Great Leap on 30% nature and 70% man. And Mao, Mao of all people, well, Mao did a self-criticism. Seething at the humiliation, he began preparations for the Cultural Revolution and painted a target on Liu Xiaoqi's forehead in permanent ink. But that would have to wait. At least for now, Khrushchev was gone and the capitalists and communists were mortal enemies once again. Balance had returned to the universe. Mao sent his capable deputy, Zhou Enlai, to Moscow to see how everybody felt. But unfortunately, amends were not to be made. The Soviet defence minister, Radion Malinovsky, made the ill-advised comment to Joe that they should dump the chairman. We Russians got rid of Khrushchev and you should get rid of Mao, he said. But Joe was loyal to the big guy, reported what was said, and the Sino-Soviet relationship went from bad to worse. The next time I'm stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, the concluding part of the Sino-Soviet split story, how America and China exploited the Cold War tensions for their own ends, and began a beautiful friendship that would last, well, not very long.